Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, and welcome to Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hey, friends, I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us for another week of Trash Candy. Tying it under the theme this week of I'm the only one, uh-huh. Melissa Etheridge, uh-huh. Stacy. <laughs> Who are you covering this week? Melissa Etheridge and Julie Cipher and Lou Diamond Phillips, the bizarre love triangle of the late 80s, early 90s. It was a magical time. It was. It was. Who do you have for us? Oh, this week I'm taking us back across the pond and we're going to cover the scandalous trashy divorce of Diana Mitford and her husband, Brian Guinness, uh-huh. before she left to marry Oswald Mosley. Of the British Union of Fascists. Correct. Interesting. Interesting. A whole bunch of history in there as well about the Mitford family mm-hmm. that will continue through our threads this week. Yeah, this one's for all you Mitford heads out there, which is apparently a thing. It is. I got a lot of trash pandas who are into the history. I hope you enjoy that one. Before we begin our episode today, Stacey, I got this big, antiqued, gilded magic (laughs) mirror. Do you? We want to give some big thanks and praise to our newest Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Thank you so much for joining us, Lorena G, Michelle WP, DDD, Emma VP, Lenore CS, and Mitch F. Thanks so much to all of our new Patreon supporters, our existing Patreon supporters, and you for coming on back to listen. You're going to come to my window. What have we got to do, Stacey? (laughs) Got to go, go, go. So, Stacey, you're going to take us back to the love triangle that ripped up the early oh. 90s. Oh, so much. Late, I, we late were 80s, fascinated early by the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it still, it's, it still haunts several of the players here. Friends, it has been suggested to me that the trashiness of the last couple of stories I've shared on this podcast made me a little too excitable and that maybe I should look around for a celebrity split where people didn't behave abysmally. Tone it down, Stacey. Tone it down. (laughs) And maybe even remained friends and stayed supportive of each other. As much as we love a good romp through the tales of celebrities behaving badly, the truth is that our pantheon of famous people quite often do have very good divorces, where everyone tries hard to be mature and loving and forgiving through a difficult process. My story this week has a little extra tinge to it, though, because this is the untrashy divorce of actor Lou Diamond Phillips from his first wife, Julie Cipher, who unfortunately for their marriage, had fallen in love with musician Melissa Etheridge during their short, youthful time together. Understandable. (laughs) This played out in the late 80s and early 90s when American culture was still trying to get its mind around the existence of gay people at all. And the media reaction to all of this, including a truly disgusting performance by Howard Stern years later, is definitely the trashiest part of this story. Let's meet Lou who was born Lou Diamond Upchurch on February 17, 1962, at the Subic Bay Naval Station in the Philippines. He's the son of a naval officer, Gerald Upchurch, and his Filipino wife, Lucy Aranas Upchurch. Lou was named in honor of a Marine named Leland Lou Diamond, who had displayed heroism in both world wars and the period between. So Lou Diamond Phillips' father tragically was killed in an aviation accident Mm. in 1963 when he was just a baby. That's tough. Lucy would eventually remarry another Navy man, George Phillips, who adopted Lou, becoming Lou Diamond Phillips. And eventually the family settled in Corpus Christi, Texas. Lou graduated from high school there in 1980 and then went on to study drama at the University of Texas at Arlington. Fantastic. Mm Mm-hmm. Things wouldn't really start to pick up for him until 1987, but fresh out of college in 84, he got straight to work on a low-budget indie that he had co-written called Trespasses. This movie was made. It is apparently terrible. It never picked up a distributor, but there are some reviews online. There's an IMDb page for it. You start somewhere. You start somewhere. 
This is how his future ex-wife, Julie Seifer, explained Lou Diamond Phillips at the very beginning of his career to Rolling Stone's Jancy Dunn in the year 2000. Julie was a sophomore at the University of Texas at Austin, studying television and film, and worked as a grip on the Trespasses crew. This is how they met. Young love. Okay, pattern here, though. Julie meets people she loves on sets of things she's working on. Okay, quote, I noticed that there was this guy at the craft services table who could toss grapes like two stories up in the air and catch them with his mouth. I was so impressed, she laughs. <laughs> Later on, I realized he was the actor playing the rapist in the movie. Oh, he was no. He was such a good actor that when we broke for lunch, no one would sit with him. I sat with him because I felt sorry for him. And this was Lou Diamond Phillips. You sat with him because you liked his great game. <laughs> so Dunn continues... The two dated for a few years, broke up, and then reconnected in Los Angeles. In 1987, they decided to marry, somewhat impulsively, on the set of a movie they were making together. Oh. Cypher says the first assistant director was a justice of the peace. The rap party was our reception, and the press tour for La Bamba was our honeymoon. Well, that is a Uh thrifty, thrifty wedding. Indeed. Good on you, Julie Cypher. Cypher continues, (laughs) but we were happy because we were poor as church mice and flying on somebody else's dime. It's fantastic. La Bamba, of course, was Lou Diamond Phillips' breakout role. He played Richie Valens, quickly followed by Stand and Deliver, starring opposite James Edward Olmos in 1988, and also in 88, Young Guns where he got to play an outlaw in the Old West alongside Emilio Estevez and Kiefer Sutherland. The 80s on fire. Boom. This was my childhood. The rest, (laughs) as they say, is history. So this is our origin story for Lou. Lou Diamond Phillips. Let's meet Julie Seifer, the central figure in our soon-to-be love triangle. She was born in Wichita or Kansas City, Kansas. I've seen it both ways. On August 24th, 1964. Ah, Virgo girl. Mm. But mostly she grew up in Texas. In that Rolling Stone piece, she revealed that as a freshman in high school, she decided that she wanted to play football. Oh, okay. Make your life easy, kid. <laughs> Got an idea. <laughs> Try out football team. She says they passed Title IX in Texas, which meant that they could no longer separate boys and girls in sports, she recalls. I told the coach I wanted to try out, and he said, no way. I said, yes way. It's the law. Good for you, Julie. They compromised. Cypher was an athletic trainer for the next four years. And this is a quote from her. I started out collecting balls at the end of practice, then graduated into butterflying split chins and taping ankles. It was such a great experience because I got to talk to the guys and relate to them in an atmosphere that most of the other girls didn't. That had a big influence on me in terms of how I deal with people. Also noted that throughout high school, she had the same boyfriend and remained close to him in 2000 at the time that article was written. Okay. Yeah. So she is uh, someone who keeps people, right? I can appreciate that. Okay. So there is maybe, like to just catch up on the timeline, there's maybe an on-again, off-again relationship with an unknown but very talented Lou Diamond Phillips, tosser of grapes. And when Julie finishes college, she heads to LA to work in the biz she got her degree in and... Poof, why not look up one of the few people you know in a very lonely industry? I bet he hasn't had anybody watch him toss grapes in a while. Right. In a 1997 biography of Melissa Etheridge by Chris Nixon, Julie is quoted as saying, The marriage was a troubled one. Lou and I were really young, and Hollywood's a big place when you've just come from Texas. We thought, well, we'll just get married, and we'll have each other no matter what. So... They did marry September 17th, 1987, just a few months after La Bamba thundered onto the screen, propelling Lou and the band Los Lobos, if you will recall, into the global spotlight. What a time to be alive. I looked up the numbers. I think this thing was made for less than $7 million and it earned more than $55 million It's enormous. It really, yeah, it really, really was. Less than a year later, pursuing her own career, having, you know, studied television and film, Julie was tapped as assistant director on a music video being shot for a new artist who was quickly gaining steam on the charts. Melissa Lou Etheridge was born May 29, 1961 in Leavenworth, Kansas. Gemini girl. Youngest of two with a consultant mom and a high school teacher dad and started playing guitar when she was eight years old. In high school, she was part of various country bands around Leavenworth and after graduating, 
she moved to Boston to attend the extremely prestigious Berklee College of Music. Young, talented, and extremely ambitious, after a few semesters there, she decided she was ready to take her shot, arriving in sunny Los Angeles in 1982 or so. Do I need to mention that Melissa Etheridge is a lesbian? Not to me. This is universally known, correct? She has not hidden this for quite a long time. Okay. From her earliest days in the L.A. scene, women were a core constituency for her music. Regardless, her talent was very real, and soon she was winning friends of all genders within the industry, but she was playing a lot of lesbian clubs in L.A. Like, she really... uh, One article I read mentioned that on her first tour, a local journalist went out, a male local journalist went out to the show and was shocked to be one of the very few men in the audience for this sort of smoking hot, you know, like gravel-throated singer. Anyway. The 80s were a special time to get in on Melissa Etheridge uh-huh. long before the, yeah, the Yes, the I world, Am album. The world caught on. Some of us, perhaps <laughs> me, me, had been into her since mm-hmm. this, this time. This and time. Yeah. Shocking. Mm. We played a little bit of her debut album music the other the day, other which we day. haven't heard in a long time mm-hmm. and still knew every word. Oh, yeah. I remember driving around my hometown. I had to replace that cassette tape in uh, my car. Cassette tape in the car. Um, Yeah. (sighs) Okay. In 1986, Island Records signed her. And in 1988, her debut album, (sighs) self-titled Melissa Etheridge, was released. It was her second attempt at a debut record. The label had deemed her first effort to be overproduced and too glossy and opted not to release it. So she headed back into the studio and cut her gritty entry to the big time in four days. Four days to put that together. I can hear it in my brain, in my heart, in my toes. Okay. Nothing happened fast when this album dropped. The song Similar Features had been released ahead of time as a single, but did not get traction. Don't You Need was released in June, also mostly to crickets. It was only when Bring Me Some Water hit the airwaves that radio stations began to get some phone calls. Can't you see I'm burning alive? Started started seeing some response in the audience, and gradually the record began surfacing into the lower echelons of the Billboard Top 200. Island Records and her management saw enough of a glimmer to get her scheduled opening for Lyle Lovett and Little Feet early in the year, and Bruce Hornsby booked her as an opener for a fall tour. Is Bruce Hornsby the mandolin wind guy, mandolin rain? Man- mandolin rain and banjo wind. You better believe it. I mean, some of, some of our favorite things here. Okay. One small bit of business, though, before she could set out on this fall tour, which would then expand into solo dates after opening for the mandolin wind guy. Anyway, um, because Bring Me Some Water was starting to perform well on radio, Island Records put up the money for a video. In the Chris Nixon book, it says that the video shoot was scheduled for September, but in a separate interview, I found the pair revealed that the anniversary that they celebrate, this was before they could legally marry, is August 23rd, the date of their first meeting. So I'm sure there were meetings, planning meetings ahead of time. Sometimes when you know, you know. They knew. Wow. They were immediately quite taken with each other. Julie was 23, Melissa was 27. And somewhat problematically, Julie was married and Melissa was about to set off for months of shows as an opener and solo all over the world. And also, Julie was straight. So there's no place for this to go. Complicated. This was nice. Nixon quotes uh, Melissa about her first visit to England to perform some shows there. So Melissa Etheridge says, we were rushing to catch a train and all of a sudden similar features came on. I said, I know that song. Then it hit me. I just sat there and cried. It's my song. That's me. Okay. In England. Okay. Of the video shoot, Julie told Rolling Stone, she had really nice eyes and she was really warm. There was just an immediate connection. The gender part was really confusing for a bit. Then hilarity ensued. (laughs) Like it does. Like it does. (laughs) Nixon also quotes Julie talking about, you know, telling Lou that she's falling for Melissa Etheridge. It's a little bit of an awkward conversation. Yeah. But a crucial one. I mean, important, an important conversation. Quote, it certainly wasn't something he expected, but I don't think it threw him for too much of a loop because he's a very open and loving person. 
When he met Melissa, he realized what a wonderful person she is. He could see how the two of us clicked so well. Mm -hmm. This is sort of a best case scenario. It's what you like to get. It's what you want. Uh, Yeah. But it was a big deal in the press. Uh, I recall, although I can't find headlines along the lines of Lou Diamond Phillips' wife leaves him for Melissa Etheridge type coverage of this. It was, I mean, it was gross. It was pretty salacious, yeah. And it followed him for years. It may still follow him. But here's the thing about the Lou Diamond Phillips-Julie Cipher split. I'm sure it was confusing and hurtful and difficult, but I think they all managed to figure out how to be cordial, if not downright friendly. And this is a bit unique because they didn't have kids. Like, they weren't papering over conflict for the sake of the kids. There was no reason to have to continue to get along. Right. Besides, you just liked each other and respected each other for the place and value in your life. Exactly. So I think the timeline here is basically early in 89, Julie and Lou separate, and Julie moves in with Melissa, who happened to live in the same neighborhood, kind of down the block. Oh, that's convenient. Right. Put some color on, come to my window, does it not? Okay. You don't even have to rent a U-Haul for that. You can just walk your boxes just, yep, down the street. Yep, just... In 1990, I think after trying some couples counseling, Lou and Julie filed for divorce. This was finalized in 1992. In 1994, Julie finally made her directorial debut with a small-budget indie called Teresa's Tattoo. Included in the cast... Both Melissa Etheridge and Lou Diamond Phillips. Really? Really. Wow. Like, I really think this was not a trashy divorce in the least. I really I think these are a bunch of creative people who are all genuinely sort of open-hearted. And I don't know. It's, it's a good divorce. These exist. It turns out. In 1998, we will move on to the trashy portion now, Lou Diamond Phillips appeared on the Howard Stern Show. Mm. Hmm. I like how you set me up. I forgot there was a trashy element to this. Oh, so trashy. Enter Howard Stern. I was able to find what purported to be a transcript of this nightmare interview, but it also appeared to be on a spammy, scammy-seeming website, and I hope I don't have a computer virus now. And clearly they had just run this audio through some kind of AI transcription generator because it wasn't like, you know, Howard Stern. So how are you today, Lou Diamond Phil? Like, it... It was just this jumble of paragraphs, and you kind of had to, like, suss out where Stern was just interrupting. He really was just, like, peppering him with really gross questions. Howard Stern's website only catalogs stuff back to 05, and this was 98. So I can't confirm any of this, but it did seem like it was authentically some sort of transcription of this interview. So Stern, uh, as he does, was asking incredibly intrusive questions about Lou and Julie's sex life to try and discern whether there was any sign that she was secretly a lesbian, although he used all sorts of other words for that. And, you know, kept like, hey, Lou, so you're remarried now. Are you paranoid about leaving your wife in the green room with my female PA? Oh, no. And Lou's like, this doesn't happen twice. This this is like a... (laughs) a one-time thing and it's all fine and like please ask me another question yeah Lou was super gracious he was very gentlemanly about his ex obviously in that setting he he had the entire setup of that show was to give him permission to be a real jerk about everything and he just wasn't he just he just didn't that's I think just not who he is good on him all right so as we know Melissa Etheridge and Julie Seifer were one of America's first lesbian celebrity couples, which in itself led to really bizarre coverage in a lot of places. They had two children together via artificial insemination, then several years later revealed that the sperm donor was none other than David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young. Are there other things to append? I mean, he was with... He's... Yeah. The birds before that. David Crosby stands on his own. David Crosby does. Yes, this was revealed in that 2000 Rolling Stone article, which includes this bit of color. At the heart of the household in more ways than one is Julie Cipher. She is the consummate family organizer, a constant blur of motion as she answers three phones at once, cuts up fruit for the kids, and arranges the evening's social plans. Trim and muscular, I'm 10 pounds thinner than I was before I got pregnant, she says cheerfully. 
With dark, shiny hair and full, pillowy lips, Cypher is an understated knockout, a mix of sporty, avid snowboarder and a third-degree brown belt in karate, and spiritual. She's teaching their children to meditate. She and Etheridge are an appealing study in contrasts. Cypher's voice is high and silvery. Etheridge's, as everyone knows, is smoky and low. Cypher is the more outgoing of the two, with an effervescent laugh and a habit of grabbing your hand to make a point. Although Cypher is one half of a famous power couple, there is little that is known about her beyond the basics. She's 35. She's a filmmaker. She was once the wife of Lou Diamond Phillips. She says, I'm more than just the golden uterus, you know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, It gets bad. Okay. Once again, Cypher finds... This is still from the Rolling Stone article. Once again, Cypher finds herself in an alliance with a person who is famous, which makes her slightly uncomfortable. I've learned how to deal with it, but I really don't like it. Given my druthers, I would be so anonymous. I'm split over my responsibility to the community and my desire for a private life. We did the cover of Newsweek when we got pregnant because it meant something to the community, and that helps me deal with this public thing because I see the good that it's doing. I'm incredibly proud of Melissa. She has such a gift, and it does so much for people. Well said. Later in the year 2000... Apparently, a year or two after Julie had told Melissa that try as she might, she just could not identify as a lesbian at that point in her life. Mm. They split up. Although they ended up living in back-to-back houses, so the kids would have the benefit of both parents. They shared, you know, backyard access. Oh, that's nice. To each other. If you want a sense of how this followed, like all of this triangle, followed blameless Lou Diamond Phillips around, here's how the Orlando Sentinel covered the Etheridge Cipher split Fully a decade after he and Julie had split. Poor Lou Diamond. Yes. Holy moly, what's happening in celebrity lesbian couple world? Not a month after Ellen DeGeneres and Anne Heche split up, here comes Melissa Etheridge and her partner of 12 years, Julie Cipher, announcing that they are finished. With the utmost love and respect for one another, we have decided to separate, said a joint statement released Tuesday. How about the kids who gets custody of their three-year-old daughter and one-year-old son? Mommy, other mommy, or sperm-donating singer, Daddy David Crosby. Oof. The statement continues, As committed parents, our top priority continues to be what is in the best interest of our children. Though elements of our lives will change, our family will always remain intact. And then the Sentinel piece continues, And in therapy. Oof. Why? Final paragraph of this trash fire. No third parties or spaceships were mentioned. That's an Anne Heche reference, I think. But prepare for a barrage of back-to-men rumors, as Cypher, like Heche, used to date guys. In fact, poor Lou Diamond Phillips is more famous for getting dumped by Cypher than he is for La Bamba. And that's the article. Wow. Just... Trash. What is that? Anyway. Whatever the heck that has to do with anything is, to my mind, an open question. The year after their split, though, Melissa released an autobiography of her own called The Truth Is, My Life and Love and Music, in which she reveals that Julie had an affair with none other than Katie Lang. (gasps) Believable. No. Relatable. (laughs) Relatable. Melissa, you didn't let her just have that on her index card? Well, Like in her laminated? It didn't break them up. It didn't break him up. Understandable, Katie Lang. Yeah. Uh, As well as a male friend. Again, didn't break... I I don't know. She also said that Bill Clinton was pretty obviously checking Julie out during a 1992 Santa Monica fundraiser, not realizing that she and Melissa were together. Not unsurprising. (laughs) Today, all three of these people seem to be happily ensconced in their current marriages. Lou had one more false start and has been with his current wife since 2007. And it seems like they have a cre- like professional and creative as well as... They do. She's mm-hmm. a very talented artist. I think her name is Yvonne. I think so. And I want to say they celebrated 18 years of marriage this week. Um, 07 to... I can't do yeah. that. Okay. He's the father of four. Uh, there are three children from his second marriage and then a fourth with his current wife. Julie married her current husband in 2004. Melissa has had quite the run this century. She beat breast cancer, and she is finally enjoying the right to legal marriage. She walked down the aisle with her now wife in 2014. 
Very tragically, the youngest child of the Etheridge Cipher relationship, Beckett Cipher, passed away in 2020 at the age of 21, having battled opioid addiction for some time. So sad. I have a lot of halos to administer in this one, primarily to Lou Diamond Phillips. I also have some trash cans, mostly to Howard Stern, but maybe also a very well-tailored and extremely dapper trash can for Katie Lang. (laughs) And of course, decades of trash cans to lazy journalists who constantly use the phrases, quote, who left him for Melissa Etheridge, or, quote, whose first wife left him for Melissa Etheridge whenever Julie's or Lou's name comes up in the press. Seriously, it has been 30 years. Can we find some new material? Do better. Do better. And that's that's my story. That's what I got this week. That was a riveting <laughs> roller coaster through the past. Thank you. I think that's a great time. Take a quick pause. Let's Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors this week. Yeah. When we come back, we're going to hear about a different version of I'm the only one. Absolutely. And while we're gone, maybe you can bring me some water. Sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William vs. Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? all in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you have been thinking about your financial situation, if you've been brewing questions you would like to ask a financial professional, if you would like some guidance on addressing debt, investing, or other general financial organization, then in the immortal lyrics of Amy Ray, I said it's time. Don't assume anything. Just go, go, go. 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 To the oaktreegroup.net. There you will find the contact information for three holistic financial planners that have been working together for over 17 years. Kelly, Eileen, and Ellen will tailor a financial strategy for your unique goals and circumstances. 
You can also give them a call at 770-319-1700 to schedule your free one-hour consultation. They would never use your years to psych you out. Again, the phone number is 770-319-1700 and the website is www.theoaktreegroup.net. Go, go, go! Alicia, do I have this right? You have for us the incredibly true adventures of two fascists in love? Pretty much. Pretty much. Today, I'm going to take us back to the UK, to the most scandalous scandal, at least of that time. We're going to talk about the trashy divorce of Diana Mitford and Brian Guinness today. Oh, British Union of Fascists guys. So not hyperbole, right? No, not hyperbole. Interesting. Brian Guinness is a, the Guinness beer heir fortune, but they will divorce because of fascism. Hmm. So Diana Mitford and Brian Guinness, match made in heaven, like bringing the right aristocratic families together and aligned, but alas, Diana is done with her marriage when she sees Oswald, mostly who is England's answer to Hitler at about the same time. He's the British Union of Fascists guy. Okay. Correct. Gotcha. We have to get her divorced to get with him first. Sure. So this takes us back to like the 30s. Oh my, does it. Okay. This one is for Flossie. Flossie is so sweet. She sent us an email like, wow, the Mitford sisters would be super trashy for you to cover. And I got to reply back to Flossie and send her a few ups because we have covered them on Patreon But I'm going to restyle two of their stories this week. One for today for Trashy Divorces and the other for our Trashy Breakups on Wednesday. Flossie, these episodes are for you. Thanks for the nice email. (laughs) Oh, the Mitford sisters. There are six of them. And the Mitford sisters may be the most infamous and fascinating group of siblings in recent history. They have been known as celebrated beauties, talented authors, political activists, unrepentant rebels, and enigmatic mysteries. Hmm. Among the six of them are stories that are complicated, controversial, tragic, admirable, as well as scandalous. All six of these gals have front row seats to the events of the 20th century. All are very famous, honestly, for not doing much, at least in their early life. They will all take on legends of their own. We hear them referred to in a group, the Mitford Sisters. But each of them, believe it or not, are shockingly independent, exceptionally charming. They are raised as a group of girls, almost two sets. You have the first set of girls and the second set of girls, but both sets of girls are raised in genteel poverty in a very stately home with their parents, Lord and Lady Reedsdale. So was this one of those families that they... Good title, no cash. Okay, gotcha. You got it. So they they just needed American wives. (laughs) They've seen an American wife. Mm -hmm. Their cousin is Winston Churchill, whose mother is Jenny Jerome, remember? Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the Midford sisters do have a brother, Tom, but poor Tom... He's never really an integral part in the story, very a la Rob Kardashian. Gotcha. He's never really in the mix of the sisters. Tom the Reluctant. Poor brother. Like, nobody remembers Tom. Papa Mitford and Mama Mitford will have seven kids in 16 years. So again, kind of two sets of kids. But in order to understand the story, I need to introduce you to Mama and Papa first. Because, whoa, a mago. Papa, mm-hmm. or Favre, as they call him. That's kind of sweet. David Bertram Ogilvy Freeman Mitford. God, that's such a lot of names. Okay. <laughs> he is the second son, and because of primogeniture, no one expects David to do too much. He's the son of Algernon Bertram Freeman Mitford and Clementine Gertrude Helen Ogilvy. They will style themselves as the Mitfords, not the Freeman Mitfords. Their line dates back to the 14th century. This is a landed gentry family from Northumberland. They have estates in Gloucestershire and Oxfordshire. And David is kind of a weird kid. He's a little bit eccentric. He's prone to fits of rage. Doesn't really give a hoot about education or reading. He only reads one book. It's his favorite book. He loves this book. 
It is Jack London's White Fang. <gasps> I was like, is it the Bible? Okay, White Fang. No, right. White Fang. And David's lack of academic pursuits means that he will not attend Eton. His older brother will, his older brother being primogeniture, the one who's going to get the title. Right, and the Etonians run British political, yeah. Every hope is pinned on his older brother. David instead will go to Radley. He will join the army. He will fail his exam for Sandhurst, so instead he goes and works for a tea planter. Now, David has met a girl. He meets her in 1894. He's 16. She's 14. She can buy my place for some tea. Her name is Sydney Bowles. She is the daughter of Thomas Gibson Bowles, who is a journalist and a conservative MP. Also, <laughs> Sydney Bowles' father back in 1863 created a little magazine you may have heard of, Vanity Fair. <laughs> he will later create another women's magazine called The Lady. So, David and Sydney marry in 1904. They've known each other 10 years. They really love each other. Nine months later, first kid. This is the end of November 1904. Wasting no time, these two. Welcome, father and muv. That's what the kids will call them. That is quite cute. After kid number one, Nancy, they're going to have six more kids through the remaining years. And I want to go ahead and set the stage here. As a second son, David is not exactly top-notch in brains or temperament. The family will live in stately homes, but they are in poverty. All of the girls in the family are essentially raised in, like, lockdown. Dad has some particular things he feels very strongly about. Father hates foreigners, Catholics, and anything different. One of those. Gotcha. Anything that... Archie Bunker. Correct. Father uh, is Archie Bunker. Okay. Disturbs his way of thinking about things. A little rigid. He's very rigid. And because of this rigidity, he's going to keep all of his girls at home. They don't go to school. Why would they? He just needs to be able to sell them to men later, right? <laughs> Believe it or not, all girls, homeschooled, interesting education, we're going to talk about that. All six will grow up to be strong-minded and confident, but it is kind of an odd flex. There's a lot of poltergeists in the family and predestination and a lot of superstitions. And mom is kind of super domesticated, which is a bit unusual for the time. Normally, ladies of the house charge a staff, but not mom. Mom is very much a do-it-yourselfer. She will buy hens and sell eggs to London restaurants. This is how broke they are. They sure. really are trying to make a dime. But also needing to be as self-sufficient as possible. I'm sure they kept eggs and, you know, ate quite a bit of chicken. Wait on it. <laughs> Fabric napkins, just because of the cost of laundering them, are verboten. Did they just send the kids out to, like, gather leaves in the yard? Like, meals on. Use your sleeve. <laughs> All of the children are raised on a kosher diet. Wait. In some weird kind of twist of something. Favre, who hates everyone. Correct. Okay. Falls into this belief that Jewish people don't get cancer. Okay. So he will raise all of his children without shellfish, sausage, or bacon. Well... One of the joys of life there, that last one. Medical treatment? Don't be ridiculous. You have to be practically dead to get to the doctor. They don't go see doctors. You wonder how much of this is poverty and how much is just the parents were really kind of off the deep end with some weird stuff. Off the deep end with some weird stuff. Okay. And poverty, why can't it I mean, be both? Sure. Now, there is no school, no formal education for the girls because father has very strict beliefs that if the girls go to school they will play hockey and get thick calves <laughs> wait Ho it it has to be hockey uh, yeah i guess they're gonna play hockey and somehow end up with thick calves wow. which would make them unattainable as debutantes well yeah you can't sell those to rich men <laughs> so uh the midford girls were not formally educated but and were hockey was banned confident Curious, exceptionally intelligent. 
So they are left to their own devices in genteel poverty. So they educate themselves and each other. They read every book in their library. They invent their own secret language. Like this really is a fascinating sibling set. There are governesses, however, who step in all with various curriculums. One of my favorite governesses will take them into town and teach them all how to shoplift on a particular day. I, wow. So a varied and ample education. We will beat inflation my way. They do have a beloved nanny. Her name is Blore. Blore is firm but fair. But all the girls are kind of left to their own devices, and all of the girls have a lot of devices. I can't get to Diana without talking about the remainder of her family and setting up a bit of a story here. So let's talk about all the kids. Just give them a little bit of a mention. Sure. Nancy, number one. She's born in 1904. She's the oldest, and Nancy will become one of the bright young things. Mm-hmm. She's lifelong friends with Evelyn Waugh. Nancy's not terribly lucky in love, but she does lead a remarkable life. She's a novelist and the oldest. The younger sisters do not find her a sympathetic character. She will make up terrible nicknames for the younger ones. But Nancy is first born up and out by her late teens and early 20s always warning everyone about proper behavior and their actions, Nancy is. Hmm. She's the annoying older sister. Pamela Mitford is number two. She's three years later, born in 1907, and Pam is not quite as flashy or exciting in the same way as her sisters. Pam is practical and private and very self-reliant, She's an avid horsewoman. She loves animals, especially her dogs. She really likes to garden. She really likes to cook. Think cottagecore. She's extremely knowledgeable about breeding and caring for farm animals. And even raises farm animals on her father's property. Okay. Okay, which is great. But see, father is charging all the girls, his daughters, more rent on his, he doesn't just give them the land for free to raise animals. He's making them pay rent to him for that land. And Pam finds out that uh, old father is charging his daughters more than what he's charging the other landowners. Mm-hmm. So Pam goes on strike. Yeah, that's so weird. Okay. Yeah, and dad will eventually relent and accommodate the rent to an appropriate amount. Wow. The thing about Pam, you may want to know, is she's considered a poultry expert and is credited with introducing the Appenzeller Spitzhauben breed chickens to Britain. Now, the way she does this is a little interesting. She hides their eggs in a chocolate box through customs when she's traveling through Switzerland. And Switzerland is where Pam will end up after her divorce from her husband, where she goes with her likely lover, another avid horsewoman, (laughs) No one really worries about Pam. She's solid, lady of the earth, cottagecore, something. Chicken egg smuggler. Third up, 1909, Tom, the son. Thomas is born, and he's the lone son and raised in a completely different way than his sisters. He goes to Eton. Off to play hockey. He can have thick calves. Tom will bring a lot of his friends around. Now, the Thing I guess you should know here, Tom will die in 1945. He's the only boy, so there's no son to take over. Hmm. Tom is, even though educated at Eton, given all the best of everything, in history he gets a little neglected by the shadow of his sisters. Diana Mitford is born in 1910. Put a pin in her, we're coming back. Nancy, Pam, Diana are kind of the first three are the three in the first set of sisters. Now we begin a second set, again with three girls, beginning with Unity, born in 1914. Unity is a rebel. She's always looking to shock and push boundaries. We're coming back to Unity so soon. Jessica happens in 1917, three years later, and Jessica is known as the Red Sheep of the Mitford family. 
She will leave for America with her husband, who is not approved. This happens in 1937 when Jessica's 19. She'll meet and fall in love with Esmond Romilly, who is her second cousin and also the nephew of Clementine and Winston Churchill. Perhaps Esmond Romilly? This is just rumor and conjecture, may even be Winston Churchill's illegitimate son. Hmm. Anyway, Jessica has a fascinating story. There are escapes and more escapes, but Jessica will eventually end up in Greenwich Village before World War II and end up, after her husband passes away, remarrying and becoming an investigative journalist and quite a political activist. Wow. The Mitford sisters are fascinating. Sure. Now, there is one interesting bit that happens in our historical timeline between kid number six, Jessica, and kid number seven, Deborah. That is that David, Favre's older brother, dies. Primogeniture. You betcha. So now David is in charge of the Mitford family name and title, and he becomes the second Baron Reedsdale. Just important to know in our in our right. time frame. Now Daddy Did- has a title. The last of our seven is Deborah. Deborah Mitford is born in 1920. Now when Deborah Mitford is 21, she will marry Lord Andrew Cavendish, mm-hmm. the second son of the 10th Duke of Devonshire. This all connects back to our Georgina story sure. from not too long ago. Somebody made a banana once. Okay, that's all I'm saying. When Deborah and Andrew marry... Andrew's not supposed to inherit the Devonshire dukedom or Chatworth estate. He's the second son. She marries for love. But going back in all of our trashy lore, his older brother William, also the husband of Kick Kennedy, dies fighting in World War II, leaving Andrew, because of primogeniture, inheriting the Devonshire title and... Deborah Midford, in the meantime, is going to save Chatsworth. Deborah, delightful. Well, each of the Midford sisters have a story all on their own. This is the story of the trashy divorce of Diana Midford that scandalizes all of Britain. So let's get to it. Here Diana is, third sister, in a family with brains and beauty and humor, and the girls are always together. There's a second set that comes after her. They're educated privately at home. Father believes that tutors are useless, so they get shoplifting nannies and access to the library. They will make up their own private languages. Nancy will give them all nasty nicknames. Mm -hmm. For instance, Unity is Knit. Deborah is Bore. Wow. Wow. Jessica is sick. She just takes pieces. I'm sensing a pattern here. Yeah. Let me find the worst part of your name. And that's your name now. Even the younger set makes up their own language with each other. That only they understand their parents, their name. Like Mm -hmm. insular upbringing intrinsically connected all of these girls. So how do we set Diana apart? Diana is the fourth child and third daughter. And she's beautiful and charming and clever She's kind and well-liked by her siblings. But Diana, as you can imagine, is a little bored and unsatisfied with her isolated, protected life in the English countryside. Let me play hockey, Dad. She wants something much more exciting than what she's getting. But Diana will be the center of attention because remember a reluctant brother, Tom? When he comes home from Eton, he'll bring home his friends And Diana is always the center of attention. Many of Tom's friends will fall for his sister Diana, including Randolph Churchill, the son of Winston Churchill. Now, Winston Churchill, for his part, really likes Diana, and he calls her Dianamite. Like dynamite, (laughs) but Dianamite. Clever, that that Winnie. The son of Winston, Randolph, will fall in love with Diana as a teenager. He's like 15. And what happens is Tom and Randolph get accused of being gay. Like, they're in some kind of homosexual affair. So this is where Randolph spills, like, no, 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 I'm in love with Diana. I don't think Randy ever gets over it, because Diana will 
turn him down, leaving Randolph all the way in the future in 1939 free to marry one Pamela Digby, soon to be Pamela Churchill in the future to be Pamela Harriman. She has so many names. We have talked about Pamela in the past. Oh my, the stories about Diana. There's just so many spider webs. It's so good. Now, Diana Mitford is considered to be the most beautiful of the Mitford sisters and one of the most beautiful and glamorous girls in all of England. Evelyn Waugh, remember, BFFs with older sister Nancy, says of Diana, her beauty ran through the room like a peal of bells. Diana's posing nude, like when she's 16, for different artists, and so when she's presented to court as a debutante in 1928, she's kind of a prize. Daddy has a title. They don't really have any money, but she is good-looking with a great name. Any aristocrat looking for a suitable young wife, Diana Mitford, she's your girl. Shortly after being presented to court, Diana will meet Brian Guinness at a society ball in Grosvenor Square. Brian's family's brewing fortune, Guinness Beer, mm -hmm. make them one of England's richest families, owning two large homes in London, a significant portion of the Sussex coast, a huge estate in Hampshire, land in Dublin, as well as a flat in Paris. Brian is also the heir to the barony of Moyne. Fantastic. Brian introduces Diana to his mother. Scandalous. Says, Mom, you're never going to believe it. Diana can even cook. And Brian's mother, Guinness, says, I've never heard of such a thing. It's too clever. She's great with eggs and chicken. Brian, young, handsome, he's 22, newly graduated from Oxford, by all accounts, Brian is kind and handsome and gentle. He's a writer. He's interested in the arts. And less than a month after they meet, Brian proposes to Diana. And her parents originally object because she's so young. But Diana and her sisters finally convince father and mother to let her marry Brian Guinness. Brian Guinness is head over heels, besotted with I mean, Diana beer reception to follow. Come on. Diana, I think, is less fond of Brian and primarily is looking at him as a path to freedom and escape from the farm where I can use fabric napkins and I don't have to collect chicken eggs every day. The young Guinnesses are an immediate hit in London's social scene. They are popular among the bright young things, as well as the Bloomsbury set. Diana is a coveted party guest. She will also host glamorous parties at their home near Buckingham Palace. They quickly have two sons, Jonathan, born in 1930, and Desmond, born in 1931. Looking at it from the outside, Diana has a perfect life. However, for all of its glamour and wealth, Diana thinks of her life with Brian Guinness as kind of a gilded cage. They don't have common interests. And it turns out she's a little numb with boredom and finds her new, handsome, kind, wonderful husband really, really boring. <laughs> little dull. Okay. He's intolerably dull and she can't stand it. In 1932, Diana will meet Sir Oswald Mosley uh -uh. at a party hosted by Emerald Cunard. Mosley at the time is the handsome, charismatic, and powerful leader of the British Union of Fascists. Problematically, Mosley's married <laughs> and will refuse to divorce his wife, although he is widely and openly known to be a horn dog. He's a huge womanizer. Diana finds all of this exhilarating. And the two begin a passionate affair shortly after they meet, not even on the DL. Wow. Making out on the streets. Wow. Nothing quiet about this is happening. But Alicia, I was told that people used to be really well-behaved and prim and proper. It's and all lies. Morally upright. Now, Brian Guinness is a true gentleman. 
And at the time, one spouse had to show infidelity, and he certainly doesn't want his wife, you know, pictures of her making out with Oswald Mosley on the street. So he offers to falsify infidelity for him. I don't want to divorce you, Diana, but if you want a divorce for me, I'll go ahead and take the hit and pretend I was unfaithful. Stand-up guy. Nice guy, Brian Guinness. Oh, Diana. By 1933, Diana's had enough. She's ditched Brian Guinness and divorce is under the way. She has thrown away her high society, bright young things, fancy parties, her children, the grandeur of all of her life, to be Mosley's mistress, which scandalizes her family and every single bit of London society. She will move out of the Tony Uppercrust sections and move into a rundown flat in Belgravia, just around the corner from Oswald Mosley, his wife, and their three children. Eek. Super convenient, though, for Oswald, because he can visit her regularly. Come to my window, yeah. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) And Diana is willing to be the social pariah she became with no promise of marriage. I don't even want to marry you. I just need you. I'm the only one. Yes, I am. Oswald isn't just married to any old person. Oswald is married to Lady Cynthia Curzon all the way back in 1920 at the Chapel Royal at St. James's Palace in London with King George V and Queen Mary in attendance. Curzon, Lady Cynthia, she's known as Kimmy. She's the daughter of Earl Curzon of Kettleston, who had been the Viceroy of India from 1859 to 1925 and the Foreign Secretary from 1919 to 1924. Kimmy's mother is Mary Leiter, who is an American mercantile heiress. Hmm. Kimmy herself is a politician and a member of Parliament in the Labor Party. I don't think their marriage even before Diana was a happy one because some of Mosley's more tawdry affairs over time were with his wife's sister, Lady Alexandra Metcalf, not to be outdone by... His wife and Lady Alexandra's stepmother, Grace Curzon, Marchioness Curzon of Kettleston. Oh, the, yeah. This is not great. No, it's this terrible. This is not great at it's all. It's terrible. Now, I'm telling you, this is the scandal that rocked London. I feel like there's just a lot of chrome-plated hearts here. Now, I want you to know, just as a little bit of interjection here, that Diana is taking her sister Unity with her to see oh. Oswald at his rally. Sure. Hold on to that. Because where Oswald Mosley is doing his thing in England, it is at the same time as Adolf Hitler is doing his thing in Germany. Again, Oswald Mosley does not believe in divorce. He has no intention of divorcing his wife while he can make out on the street with Diana. But he is soon free to marry because Kimmy dies of peritonitis in 1933 at the age of 34. Wow. This is not a good story. <laughs> you brought the happy. I got the trash. Yeah, you do. All right. So Cynthia dies. Kimmy mm-hmm. dies. Mm-hmm. And even when Oswald is free to marry Diana, he's still got mistresses in addition to her. Diana, I'm the only one, tolerates his repeated infidelities, continues being his public mistress for three more years until they finally marry in 1936. Oh, happy ending. Yeah? Okay. So before we get to their marriage, I do want to add just a little bit of a follow-up here for Nice Guy. Nice Guy's finished first sometimes. Brian Guinness Mm. will also remarry in 1936 to Elizabeth Nelson. They will have nine children Mm. and remain happily married until his death in 1992. All right. So there's a little bit of happy in this. Okay, but big year, 1936, Diana and Mosley getting married in a secret wedding. October 6, 1936, in the home of Joseph Goebbels. There is a very famous guest, Hitler, attends Mm -hmm. their wedding and bestows on them quite a lovely wedding gift, a framed photo of himself. 
That's nice. It's a keepsake. Swell guy, Hitler. What a lovely gift. Here's a photo of me. Hang it on your wall. It's a conversation starter. Oswald and Diana will have two sons. Alexander, born in 1938, and Max, born in 1940. It is only after the birth of their first son, two years later, that they make the marriage public. Wow. Unsurprisingly, if you know anything about World War II, again, this is a Trashy Divorces podcast, not a political podcast, but in 1940, the British government wisely probably deems Oswald Mosley's agitation and rhetoric to be a little too dangerous to tolerate. You think? Oswald is detained in Holloway Prison less than two weeks after Winston Churchill becomes Prime Minister. Hmm. Now, the thing that Diana doesn't know, that doesn't come out till 40 years later, remember? Older nitpicky sister Nancy. Nancy has gone to MI5 before the detainment oh my God. of Oswald and eventually Diana to say that they present a significant public danger. You need to lock them up. I'm her sister and it's two fascists in love and maybe you just need to detain them. I mean, there's a war on, right? Yeah. 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 Diana, just 11 weeks after giving birth oh my God. to her fourth son, Oswald's second child, she's interned at Holloway Prison. Now, sweet Jessica, red sheep of the family, is actually watching all of Diana's kids while Diana and Oswald are being detained in prison. Even though the Mosleys were never officially charged or convicted of a crime, they will remain in Holloway Prison until March 18th, 1943. Three years. There is a debate in the House of Commons whether or not to release them, and when they are released, they remain under house arrest and police supervision until the end of the war. I mean, that was a big war. I would like to say that the Mosleys are disgraced or outcasted. Diana, I'm the only one, man. She will always love Oswald. She's the only one for mm -hmm. him, and she has cast her lot with him. The two after the war become persona non grata in England and mostly around Europe for quite a while. They'll move to Ireland for a little bit. Oswald is going to continue to dabble play in politics. Fun fact, uh, Oswald is one of the first to create and promote the Holocaust denier movement. Fantastic. It's terrible. Yeah. Even in interviews that Diana Mitford gives well into her 80s, she will speak of Oswald Mosley and his ideals with, she's starry-eyed. Great passion, conviction. Did he know she grew up kosher? <laughs> In Diana's later years, she will write several books, including a biography of one of her BFFs, Wallace Simpson, entitled The Duchess of Windsor, hmm. based on her personal encounters and relationship with Wallace. A little bit of a fun additional spider web here. Daphne Guinness, model socialite, heiress, and fashion designer, is Diana's granddaughter from her oldest son with Brian Guinness. Daphne was married to Spyros Nikaros, the mm. son of Greek shipping magnet Stavros, Stavros from 1987 to 1999. Daphne Guinness will rack up a $39 million divorce settlement from that one. Diana Mitford left her life behind to marry a fascist, stuck with him whole lifetime. No other guy for me. Diana Mitford will pass away at the age of 93 in August of 2003. She is buried at the family estate next to her sisters. What a weird, weird story. And that is the scandalous, <laughs> trashy divorce of Diana Mitford and Brian Guinness and her love affair. Marriage to Oswald Should Mosley. have gone to raise chickens with your sister in Switzerland. I think Pam really does have it the best in that. Mm -hmm. As trash cans go, I'm going to hold off on trash cans for the Mitford family until maybe we get to unity sure. when we return on for trashy breakups. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. You don't think about the stories of the bad guys so much, right? Diana Mitford, 
scandalized Wrong side London. of history. Yeah, well. I don't know. Every trash can in Belgravia, mm-hmm. maybe. Because y'all are just making out on the street. It's just unreal. Father, fit to be tied. I'm sure. Love, can't handle it. All of her sisters, Nancy turns her into MI5 for goodness sakes. Wow. Whew. There's your segment one of the Mitford sisters for all of my history trash pandas. I hope you enjoyed that. We'll follow up with a little bit more of the back half on that and trashy breakups on Wednesday. Thanks everybody for tuning in. It was quite an adventure this week. That was that was quite a ride. I it's so it's so yeah, anyway, I find that all very unsettling. All right. Until we talk again on Wednesday, dear friends. If you need more of us, you can track us down at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. And don't forget, send your emails of the stories you want to hear mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and or your listener letters to trashy divorces at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Y'all, thanks so much for tuning in. We adore you. Until we meet again on Wednesday, keep your hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy. Big love, friends. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.